Hello, welcome to Full Release with Samantha B. Hopefully you'll experience one by the end of this. Happy first week of daylight savings, everyone, or as I like to call it, the week I realize how many clocks I have and none of them have the right time. So like you, I'm just constantly sitting in the dark, which I guess is just going to be what I do for the next six months. What a time to be alive. Thank you, farmers. As always, I'm joined by my producers, Sophia Baron Reinstein and Adam Howard. Okay, podcast gals. Today on the show, we have actor turned public servant turned actor turned producer turned everything Cal Penn. Cal is known for his starring role in the classic stoner comedy, Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. So I want to take some bets. Do you think the Biden administration is going to legalize the marijuana? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> the end. I would no. love it. Well, please welcome fan, Cal Penn. <laughs> I'm a fan of marijuana, so I wish that they would, okay. but I feel like we've learned, if anything, we've learned during these last few months that it's nearly impossible to do big things because mm. we have a bunch of horrible recalcitrant Democrats. Um, right. So I think it's going to keep happening in the States because clearly the business community has recognized what a huge you know, potential it is to make money. This mm-hmm. is why I think a lot of the resistance to this has died down, which I actually am inspired by, mm-hmm. that the country seems to have finally gotten a little bit like clarity that you're not going to have reefer madness if you if you try this. Right. But uh, yeah, I assume it's going to be a like state by state thing. And then maybe right. 20 years from now, we'll look back and it'll just be like alcohol, you know, but. Right. Yeah, right. I definitely feel like it's going to be one of those things that like President Donald Trump Jr., uh, like legalizes, oh, and then we're gonna be like, oh, but we wanted that, but now we oh, we can't celebrate it because of who did it, and then it's just gonna be one of those things where it's like, oh, that was ever illegal. Like sometimes yeah. I think about prohibition, I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah, right. Oh yeah, prohibition. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, prohibition. My God. Oh, yeah, prohibition. <laughs> what a I remember time. that. I remember youth. it well. There I was running rum up the Dawson <laughs> Highway. What's it called? What's that highway on the? Anyways, oh, whatever. <laughs> that was everyone's. Anyway, this is not relevant to the conversation we're about to have today. But I know, like everyone's grandparents are like. I was in the war. My grandfather fought in World War II. I'm like, yeah, my granddad was in the war too. <laughs> and I was like, what did he do in the war? And I'm like, he, well, he ran alcohol up to Alaska along the coast <laughs> of Canada. And that's Everyone what, needs a job. Everyone needs a job. It was a very important job. <laughs> he literally was a rum runner in World War II. I'm sure the people that he was running the rum to thought it was the most important job of anyone. I think it was a very important job. And so it's not like, you know, like my husband's granddad was like, oh, we were on a boat and the boat got torpedoed. And it was like, <laughs> this is such horrible stories. And if I ever asked my granddad about the war, he's like, I had best time we had so much fun i played poker we drank cocktails anyways i took a mixology class (laughs) what a time to be alive all right that's a terrible story but a great intro to cal i don't know why (laughs) okay we are gonna take a quick break but we have cal pen coming up so don't turn this thing off 
Joining me today is actor, author, and member of President Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement, Cal Penn. You know Cal from movies like the Harold and Kumar series and the namesake and TV shows like House and Designated Survivor. And in the middle of his successful acting career, he took a two-year sabbatical to accept a job in the Obama White House. Since then, he created and starred in NBC's Sunnyside and hosted Cal Penn Approves This Message. Leading up to the 2020 election, his new memoir, You Can't Be Serious, is seriously funny, and it's out now. Welcome to the show, Cal Penn. Hi, it's nice to see your face. Nice to see your face. Okay, let me, let me look at your sweatshirt here. I really like yeah, it. This sweatshirt I, I bought last year. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, there was nowhere to wear it, I guess, maybe uh-huh. two years yeah. ago, whenever I bought it. <laughs> Uh, and then now, and then I gained, mm-hmm. you know, 15 pounds of, I'm drinking Great. alcohol and cooking uh-huh. cakes weight. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, thanks to this press tour being over zoom, um, mm-hmm. this part of it looks nice. That's great. I just can't wear it in public from, from like the chesties down. Okay. Cause it's like where... super tight. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not it's a it's crop. A, exactly. Really, yeah. Really high crop. <laughs> I love to always describe what people are wearing because no one can see. So we can do, we can wear whatever we like. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very blue and bright orange camo. Um, it's great. Hoodie. Thank you. Love it. Okay. Where are you? Where are you physically right uh, now? I am in my apartment in, uh, okay. in Midtown. Okay. All right. Yeah. All You're right. in the city. Yeah. I am. I'm yeah. on the Upper West Side. Okay. And so I'm in my, I don't even know what this room is. It's like a transitional room. Uh-huh. with where I do uh, the podcast from in the city. So it's like books on this side. It's like a kind of a workroom playroom with a little couch and a gently used Peloton. Very Never nice. used. It's not even plugged in. It just holds stuff. I have uh, <laughs> I have an air bike, which is way oh. less way less fancy than a Peloton. Um, okay. I know the, the background's probably blurred, so I don't know if it you'll is. see it if I turn the... No. If it's I turn okay. the thing, but it's plastic. Okay, it's a plastic. That's great. Plastic okay, wait, exercise bike. I have to go back to something that you said before, yeah. which is that you cooked, you were making cakes during <laughs> quarantine. Are you like, do you like to bake? I like to cook. I mean, there like were cook. there were a ton of uh, recipes and cookbooks and stuff that I yeah. that I went through. And then there was this phase of, of like baking stuff, but I, yeah. I it wasn't fancy. And I know no. for sure that it was just because I was addicted to sugar. Okay. That it was just like, oh, I'm going to bake a cake. And then it was like, well, I guess I'll just have a little piece of this cake with breakfast, like with my coffee. (laughs) And then I was like, well, I just had dinner. That Thai food is pretty spicy. I should have a little cake. You know, you're you're preaching to the converted (laughs) here because uh, I made so many cakes during quarantine. Did you? I do because I love to. I'm always like, I definitely take the, I definitely have this idea that if you bake the baked good, it's kind of good for you. Like it's right, like wholesomely, yeah. like it's like not really, it's not like a store-bought cake, which is totally. like whatever. You're in control of what's in it and then it's warm and you have to. And a lot of cakes <laughs> yeah. now are like, this is also good with breakfast. Like yeah, they're described yeah. that way. So you're like, oh, that's breakfast food. <laughs> did, uh, did you decorate your cakes? No. Yeah. Very rustic. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to decor- If you're doing it yourself, yeah. you think you've put in enough effort. That's right. You don't need to put like, and by, a, like By the way, I don't, I, I feel like your brain is probably similar because of what we do for a living. But the, yeah. the whole catalyst of baking the cake was I, I'm in a, um, I'm in a furnished sublet right now and okay. have been for longer than I thought I would be. Uh-huh. But the guy who actually owns it has, yeah, we found in the cabinet one of these really fancy 
like glass cake display things oh. that like the fancy old timey white ladies have in like yeah. in like the crown. Oh wow! And so I was like, well, this. I mean, I, it, the I need to put a cake there. You're so that's what started it. the baking, where where it was a, literally a prop, a life prop that made me go. I know what I need to do. I need to <laughs> I need to provide the thing that belongs in there. I have to fill this thing. It's part of the requirement of this sublet is that we put this thing in operation. Okay. So we, I feel like our lives have like circled each other a little bit or like we are in a similar realm. We kind of merge worlds a little bit. You (laughs) know what I mean? Yeah. Because you've done, we've, we've, we don't have the same, we obviously don't have the same trajectory, but we're dabbling in all these different worlds or working professionally in all these different worlds. So you are an actor, you're a producer, you're a writer, you're doing everything, and you worked in the White House. Now you've returned to Hollywood. Like, are you going to, what about, and you know, President Obama is, he's followed in your footsteps as well, because now he's in Hollywood. Are we going to see a Cal Penn, Barack Obama Netflix series? I, I'm not opposed. Just, I'm not I'm opposed. Not opposed. My, my, uh, my dream scenario of what happens with my book is that I option mm-hmm. it. I option the movie rights, but yeah. now I'm like, I'm too old to play me in the first half of the movie. So we hired Great. Dev Patel and he, he plays me Great. for the, or Karin Brar, like one of those guys. Uh, but I guess like, Maybe we can sell it to higher ground and maybe it's a Netflix thing. Listen, I'm just saying sometimes you just need to put it out in the universe. I'm not opposed to that. I mean, look, he, the content they're producing also is so um, really good, thoughtful and, and mm-hmm. yeah, really, really good. And especially just given that platform, you know, being able to. And I know that they're intently listening to my podcast, like <laughs> directly. They just wake up and then on a Tuesday they go, well, let's go. Come on, Michelle, let's download this get yeah, going i am curious what uh, i don't know if they've talked about what podcasts they listen to because they uh the the president always puts out his seasonal playlists right and his yes. book lists and those are always really interesting because yes. they're they're such a cool collection of artists and and you know literary folks i haven't seen a a podcast list a podcast yeah, list. maybe because they have their own podcasts well i'm sh- sure they probably would just <laughs> fine i mean fine <laughs> Whatever. Um, okay. So tell me what, what compelled you? What, what's the book? What's, what compelled you to write this book? Did you write it during quarantine? Were you already going to write it? And then quarantine just happened. So you were like, well, I can finish the book now because I've got time between this and making cakes. I, <laughs> I was already going to write it, but, but okay. quarantine definitely helped move that along. And the, okay. the, the reason I wanted to write this book was basically I wanted, I mean, like you said, I've had, I've had the, the privilege of this crazy journey through two different industries, yeah. Hollywood and DC, both of which are viewed kind of as a monolith, like, like they're totally unchangeable to most people, but the truth is they're very malleable. And I kind of thought if there's a, if I can write a book for basically the, like, the 20 year old version of me uh, and then simultaneously like that part of everybody who has either thought about doing that one crazy thing or has tried to do it. And people sort of say, you can't do that. You're insane. You know, or the double entendre of the title, you can't be serious. I thought like, especially coming out of the last two years that we've had, maybe there, maybe there is a reason to tell my story right now. Right. And I was so excited to tell that. And I, I will say, um, the first time I was approached to write this book, this, this is maybe a hat tip to uh, my my manager. I've only had one manager in, in as an actor. 
I describe him as kind of every character in the TV show Entourage in one. Okay. So he's like, you know, like a lion with a heart of gold, like very loyal, sure. but could just eviscerate you in a negotiation, which uh-huh. is somebody like me needs that, right? Because I'm just yes. too, I'm too nice. Right. So the day I left the White House, he called me and, and he said, uh, hey, you need to write a book. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, no, 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 you have mm-hmm. to, you have to write a book. You just, you're, you know, aside from like, um, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan and Ben Stein, you just took a sabbatical from acting. Nobody has really mm-hmm. done that recently. You should write a book. And I said, I, I don't have a story to tell. I mean, the reason that I took the sabbatical to work in, in DC at the white house was not to write a book about it. That just feels wrong. I did it because right. I genuinely feel like it's the right thing to do at this point in my life. And so I had, I had waited for, you know, five years before I finally said, wait a second, I do think I have a reason to tell my story now. Right. Um, so that's what brought us to, to writing it now. That's great. Isn't it so funny how, Sometimes people have to tell you that you have a story to tell before you're really, because you're, you're just like, no, it's just me. I'm just, no, it's just me. I don't know. Yeah. It's I, just... I, I don't know if you're like this, but I'm notoriously bad at how other people perceive me. I'm just oh, not I'm good at it. I'm bad. I'm very bad at it. <laughs> so, Wait, how do you see yourself versus how people see you? I, I, like, I, so I see myself as just a guy who has a very overactive imagination and a short attention span. Okay. But I forget, uh, you know, I still forget sort of what I do for a living. So I'm, you know, you, you mentioned this amazing uh, hoodie that I love that I don't fit into. I'm also wearing <laughs> oversized sweatpants right now. And I will 100% forget what I do for a living and walk to the Rite Aid on the corner yeah. and do a full 15-minute running of errands. Um, and in the pre-mask world, this was a, a little trickier because people would, like, ask you for a selfie or s- sneak a photo. And right. I would remember, I'm like, oh, shit, that's right. I have a job in the public eye and there is a reasonable expectation that you can say hi to me and I probably should have put on pants before (laughs) like before running my errands. It's just little things like that that I just don't I just forget, you know, Uh, that's easy. That's easy to forget. And it's especially easy to forget, actually, in New York City. (laughs) Mostly people don't give a shit, but sometimes they really do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I, I feel you. Okay, so in your book, you talk about how you first saw yourself depicted on screen in yeah. a positive and complicated way in a movie called Mississippi Masala. Like, did that movie change your life, do you think? It definitely changed my life. So okay. I saw that movie, and for, for folks who don't know, that's one of Denzel's earliest movies. Right. Uh, it was right before, I think, he won the Oscar for, was it Glory? I think it was Glory. Uh, but he, you know, it, it was him and Sarita Chowdhury, and it was directed by by Mira Nair. And up until that point, so up until that year, eighth or ninth grade, the only time I'd seen brown folks on screen is if they were cartoon characters or if they were, right. you know, people in brown face. <laughs> and right. and it's hard to explain a lot of times. I know it's it's such a topic of conversation these days, but it's 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 tough to explain to friends who did grow up seeing people who look like them on screen, what that means. Right. And it, it sort of is like, you feel like your options in life are limited if you're not seeing constant reflections. Right. And I'm not saying you have to see all positive depictions. I mean, to me, the real humanity in seeing people is with all of the flaws and all of the hardship and all of the, the reality of and the joys of, of who they are. So that movie, that Marinara film, Mississippi Masala, was the first time that I saw complex, real characters who also happen to be South Asian on screen. And I, I remember being oddly empowered by it and thinking, well, wait a second, if, if Marinara can do this, maybe I can do this too. And right. it was around the same time that I started getting an interest in, in performing to begin with. 
And how did your parents feel about that? <laughs> well, they were, not, they were like, nah. <laughs> go for it. Live your dreams. I don't know if you know this about many immigrants, but especially um, those who came mm-hmm. in what we call the post-1965 <laughs> wave of immigration uh-huh. to fill uh-huh. labor shortages in engineering and medicine. Um, they did not move to America for their firstborn son to be an actor who smokes weed in stoner movies. That was just not a, <laughs> no. not a thing. Yeah, it was tough. That was a really hard conversation. And, and I think it is for a lot of people, but especially when your, your parents' awareness of what it means to, to, to go after the American dream is really the sciences and, and filling this labor shortage and right. being able to come to America for that. Those were really a, a long series of really tough conversations. Yeah. And how are they now? They're great. Now they're like, yeah, now they're like, okay, you were right. They were like, you could have, you could be a doctor at the same time, though. You could have. What's very sweet about it, actually, is my my mom, I want to say this was probably around the time I was on house. um, She started uh, trying to talk to uh, the the parents of like that younger generation of South Asians who who had expressed an interest in the arts. And my mom would talk to the parents and say, no, the arts are actually a great career. Yes, it's not stable. I was wrong about, you know, the fact that there isn't a space for our kids in this industry. And it was really touching to see that I didn't know that she was necessarily doing this until I kind of caught her in the act. And it was was very sweet. Yeah, that's very sweet. I want to talk a little bit about your your time at the White House and just kind of politics in general. You know, I know you were you you went out and you were you went to like a Phil Murphy rally. So you're very you're still very much involved in this world. And what was that like for you? What do you do you really do you think that people vote for Phil Murphy because you're there? Like people always want me to do stuff like yeah. go to rallies and stuff. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to. But it's nice to I just interviewed him. He's great. Yeah, it's really great. I like to participate. Sure. I don't know what it changes. How do you feel about that? I don't I don't necessarily think that celebrities are going to change the minds of of anybody's vote. But I think there's an opportunity as as validators for people who we like that. Right. It, it, continues to create kind of buzz around certain conversations. So for for example, you know, one of those two Phil Murphy events, I opened along with six other people, all of whom were state or local politicians. Yeah. And then you had Phil Murphy and President Obama. I am not drawing any humans to that crowd <laughs> that Barack Obama and Phil Murphy are not drawing themselves. You know what I mean? Like in the chart of overlap. Right. It's like it's nice that Cal's there, but really we're here to see Barack <laughs> Obama, right? But I will say that for a lot of those other rallies and even even the fact that, that they mentioned you in the lineup, for some people, especially given how fragmented our politics is, it kind of can offer a second look, just like anybody, right? You have the head right. of a head of a labor union or a CEO of a company. If you're really speaking to something that you're knowledgeable about, it's less about you as the actor and it's more about in the case of, of Governor Murphy. I'm from New Jersey. Yeah. You know, the, the the public high school system in New Jersey really benefited me. I went to a publicly funded arts high school. All of that stuff. The reason that I have this career that I have now is very much because of of a place like that. So I think finding that uh, finding that personal story and making sure that it's real right. is is helpful. But to your point, I mean I also do say no to a lot because I bet you know, you I do. worry. You know, you, you just don't want to do the wrong thing and also Sure. Yeah. You can't go to every single one. I mean, you can't go to every single one. Yeah, no, that too, for sure. And I bet you get a lot of requests that are like, can you please come to this rally? And you'll have the opportunity to give like a 45 to 60 minute speech on whatever (laughs) thing is you is you're obsessed with right now. And you're like, you want me to do a 
a what? <laughs> right. like, what? Do you have any idea how long that takes to write? <laughs> That's very time-consuming. <laughs> this is not a part-time right. gig. Yeah. Um, okay, so one of the biggest growing voting blocks are voters of East Asian and Southeast Asian descent. Yeah. In what ways, how do you think this is going to shape future elections? And do you, because I, I don't think this, but do you think that either party is really doing a good job of like courting that vote? Or, you know, is either party doing enough, I guess? I, I definitely think it's it's a fascinating conversation, especially for South Asians. I mean, a- Asian Americans as a whole, right? It's, it's a group, it's under the single umbrella, but those, there are like 50 different subgroups that make up Asian Americans. And it's everyone from fairly wealthy Japanese American or Indian American doctors to Cambodian Hmong refugees. Right. And so there's no, it's sort of silly that we put them all in one category. Right. I think the approach from Democrats has tended to be, and I'm very biased here because for about a year and a half, I was the, the, uh, president's head of outreach to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders at the White House. And I know that um, one of the things Obama did that other Democrats have done is is to figure out how to target services to these communities in a way that eliminates government waste. So in actuality, it should be something Republicans get on board with, too, frankly. But um, things like, you know, are there communities that need better access to learning English? Are there health disparities that exist or economic disparities that exist that are based on language? I'll give you one very quick example. Um, I, I worked on putting together an executive order for the Asian American Pacific Islander community that would establish something called the White House Initiative on Asian Americans. I I talk about this in a lot of detail in the book, but I'm going to give you the abridged version. Republicans go apeshit over this because they're like, why should should there be uh, an executive order only for a particular ethnic group? And the first answer is like, you know, calm down, Karen. There's a whole... (laughs) <laughs> there, there are many executive orders that also target Irish Americans and Italian Americans yeah. and and rural Americans. Yeah. And so just first of all, I, you know, there shouldn't be. Why is there so much rage? But the second piece of it is the reason why. So we put this executive order through and, and about six months later, the oil spill, uh, the BP oil spill in the Gulf happened. Right. And most people didn't realize that the, a majority of the fishermen in the Gulf happen to be of v- Vietnamese descent. And most of them don't speak English as their first language. Right. So when BP went down there and tried to get them to sign these complicated settlement documents and were sort of doing whatever these big corporations do, if it weren't for this executive order, the federal government couldn't have offered things like translation services to these communities. Right. And obviously it wasn't like the White House was going in and telling them whether they should or shouldn't sign settlement documents. That's up to their families. Right. But just to provide those resources, I mean, the, the idea that just the, the the moral imperative of that is huge, but even if you don't give a shit about the moral imperative... There's also a huge economic component to all these fishermen being out of work for so long. Right. And so if it weren't for that, you know, who knows what would have happened to them. The point is, I think Democrats are a little bit better at offering those targeted resources right. because they're, they're sort of not scared of acknowledging that there are differences within our diversity. I, I will say, though, on the on the right, and there are plenty of Asian Americans and South Asians who who skew fairly far to the right. Yeah. Their view of that is totally different where they just they believe in a total hands off every person for themselves uh, and I, I my feeling is there's also a bit of revisionism 
in terms of their immigration history. You know, they often forget that the reason we were allowed to come here, our parents were allowed to come here, is to fill a labor shortage. And instead, they say things like, well, we did it. How come that other minority group can't do it? You know, it's like, well, Well, there's plenty of politicians (laughs) who are like, I was on food stamps and I did it all by myself. And you're like, wait a second. And you just say you were on food stamps, right? Exactly. You (laughs) you know, everybody needs a leg up. And it seems to me like translation services or just like legal advice. That's a very foundational. That's just very basic. Yeah. Like, why are we the world's richest, most powerful country if we're not providing kind of the basic social safety net? A hundred percent. Well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) do you have an answer? (laughs) I don't have the answer. I mean, I've heard some stuff. As we're sitting here and they're like negotiating all this other stuff, and I'm like hearing all about paid leave, like disappearing off of this. I'm like, yeah, no, last night I had so many text combos that were like, just burn it down, burn it down. Oh, God. Well, that doesn't go well. No, I know. Well, that's why they were text conversations and not tweets. Yeah. They were pretty no (laughs) (laughs) So sick of us. Okay, so all of the work that you did, so, you know, the in the Office of Public Engagement, what happened to all of that during the Trump years? What is the status of that now? It depends on what it was. So for better or for worse. Speaking the, of burning things down. <laughs> yeah. The majority of things that I worked on were uh, were things that were never sexy enough to make it onto CNN or, or MSNBC or Fox, right? So right. things like, uh, you know, the there was a, a guy I worked for, Cass Sunstein, who is Samantha Power's husband uh, at OMB, was tasked with revamping the FAFSA form. I mean, this sounds so boring, right. but if you're 18 years old or however old you are trying to fill out your FAFSA form, it's helpful yeah. that it's that it's easier. And I know if anybody filled it out recently, you probably don't think it's easy. I promise you it was easier than it used to be. Uh, you know, th- <laughs> things like that, right. or uh, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you know, that was too, too huge for Republicans to roll back, even though they probably would have wanted to. They they obviously tried to roll back uh, our, our, our trans family having the chance to serve in the military. I know, right. you know, Biden reversed that. So there are things that were part of the push and pull um, that hopefully you know, over the next four years is kind of rectified and, and expanded. What do you make of rumors that Matthew McConaughey might seek the governorship of Texas? My, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I... Is it ever a good idea for, uh, you know, um, celebrities to run for public office when they have no experience in public service? I mean, Schwarzenegger was governor for two terms, right? That's true. That is true. Who am I to say whether it's a good idea or not? I've mostly been on McConaughey's website because his book website is so good. And I was like trying to steal ideas for marketing. Oh, oh, wait, I haven't been to his book website. His book website's pretty good. It's called Green Lights or Green Light. But it was. uh... (laughs) People went crazy for his book. They have to go crazy for your book. I hope so. But yeah, I I don't know about the. the... Look, we've also had. You've had a lot of people uh, who don't have experience who have been. Elected recently, I mean, the the most clear cut examples are folks in the House on both the left and the right. Right. Um, so I I don't know that it's um, I I think the the appeal that that folks have coming from the outside is something that neither party should entirely ignore. Right. I also do think it's interesting when anybody who's in the public eye is like, I can do this. I'm like, well, all right. I'm fascinated to see okay. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. My we my kids were all we were all in the car, and my son was like, you have to listen to this song that uh the rock put out and so we all listened to it in the car and then they were like people want him to run for president and i was like this is a very complicated question <laughs> we just have to pull this apart we can't right. just we're we're not just gonna leave that on the yeah. floor but wait would you ever do are you gonna is that 
look at your shaking your head. Like, oh God, I've been on the other side. It's I respect awful. I respect people who do. Obviously, mm-hmm. I just don't think I have it in me. Like yeah. I, I love. Um, I I just I, I love what we do as as performers yeah. so much. I would love to continue to help out. I'm I've made no secret of the fact that in in retirement or sooner, depending on who's president, like I'd love to be an ambassador one day. Oh, like that that's a yes. great way to use your background in the arts to help with yes. cross cultural understanding and things like that. But mm-hmm. I I don't mm-hmm. have any plans to run for office. Yeah. Right. Wait, what about you? Never. Okay. Not in one mil. Not in a million billion. Because Cause you know people are like she would be amazing. Never. It's never going to happen. I feel, I think I feel as you do, I like what I like what I do. And I respect what, what political figures and, and like, especially like the new crop of like new people who are coming in. I really, I like, I love Cori Bush. And I like, you know, I like, I like those people to do that work. I don't think that I'm equipped to do it. I can't. I need a break. I need a break from all that. I don't want it. No. The answer sure. is it. I can see it in your face, by ever. the way. Your face is very yeah, tense no. when I when I propose it this. Doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't even, I, I don't even register it. It's not even like one of those ambitions that you like secretly hold in yeah. your heart and you're like, never, but honest, but secretly you want to. I'd honestly really rather just bake cakes. Yeah. Like t- for just for You hated that rustic, I even asked you that question. <laughs> rustic cakes (laughs) i have to put i get a little i definitely during the trump years got a little furrow between my brows and so now even talking about running for office i have to go put some scotch tape on it (laughs) just to smooth it out (laughs) is it bad do you like it when people talk to you about political stuff or do you like are you like i don't know or you're just i mean it depends like you you know but you are not people like you're you know you're not uh, some random hey i have a a random question about politics i think both our both our backgrounds plus the 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 folks who listen to this podcast they they know their shit and they're very curious and they're very engaging and fairly open-minded and so i'm actually i actually enjoy these conversations oh good yeah okay well then let's keep going (laughs) i have to ask you about the midterms oh okay ask you where you think we're gonna i'm i'm pretty worried about it to be honest with you pretty worried about it like especially given all of the debates that are happening around this infrastructure bill, I actually have a sense of tension in my heart. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm also tense. And the the reason that I'm tense is, you know, it's, it's sort of the, um, it, the best example I can give you is the Claire McCaskill nonsense, how she thinks that she lost because she was too liberal. It's like, no, right. you probably lost because mm. you weren't progressive enough. If you look at the numbers of who the potential voters are, the ability to expand the electorate. But by the way, I'm applying this to the midterms, too, because I just feel like yeah. in so many pockets around the country, if if candidates and I'm talking about Democratic candidates, if they if they favor the perceived safety of centrism, I think that's where we really lose a lot of ground instead of, of these bold right. ideas. And I, I'm not saying that the boldest of the bold ideas in places like New York City are necessarily going to, we're not going to get 100% of that for the country. But, you know, that that 50% of it is actually a huge step in the right direction. And, and we have the numbers. Republicans wouldn't be so hell-bent on voter suppression guised as, well, you don't have an ID, you know, if right. it weren't for the fact that they knew the numbers were on our side. So my my real anxiety comes from whether the candidates are going to really embrace those bold ideas and 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 put forward a plan because the Republicans don't have they don't have policy proposals. You know their right. their plan is always a, a lot of culture wars, yelling and screaming, or or theoretical stuff from the eighties, which just doesn't work in today's today's world. I'm really worrying that we're spending a lot of time misreading the electorate. Mm. 
like really, really so? misreading. And just because, just because this migration to the center, like yeah. what is really happening on this like grand scale right now is failing a lot of people. It's yeah. just, we're watching it fail in real time and people are so angry. And that's why we need the rock to run. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. No, please God, don't. Please don't do that. Okay, you do talk in your book about voter, the roots of voter suppression yes. and why voting is on a Tuesday. Yes, which is great. Can you give our listeners the quick, the quick version of that? Is there a question? Yeah, the quick version of that is in the eighteen. I think it's the eighteen sixties. Before there was fucking electricity. Uh, everywhere <laughs> they decided that election day should be a tuesday because it couldn't be on a weekend because the sabbath was like saturday and sunday and you can't travel sure. because the lord says you can't and then monday i think monday was market day so farmers couldn't couldn't leave on mondays wednesday had some sort of an open day so the theory was you could travel after market day vote on a tuesday because by the way you'd have to take your horse and buggy to the county seat and the reason you had a horse and buggy is because you were a rich white man who was a property owner. Almost nobody else could vote yep. at the time. And it's just a legacy of that time period. And of course, there are states and communities that have early voting and extended hours and, and vote by mail. But all that stuff is under attack now. And and I just felt like I had to mention it. I couldn't talk about right. voters, especially, I mean, that chapter you're referring to, I also talked pretty openly about the Democrat on Democrat voter suppression that I saw in Iowa in the lead up to the Iowa caucuses in 2008. And I felt like if we're, if, if we're trying to be better about this, we just also need to talk about this very complicated history of, of what goes into that and why. Yeah. What do you think is time to switch things up on Iowa? Yeah, I mean, I think so, right? They couldn't. Mean, they couldn't get their on. math together. I mean, people to judge one, and oh, they didn't. They God. didn't find out till the next day, and they, 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 the whole thing was over by then. I don't know. I, I do think I, if you asked me this in two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, when you know I worked mm-hmm. there for so long in Iowa, Obama wins, and we're all we've got these rose colored glasses. I would say it's kind of amazing that it's a state that's so politically diverse. Right. But I, I do think, especially after the last four years, it's very clear that, that demographic diversity matters a great deal in terms of voting right. blocks and, and representation. And we were just talking about the best ideas coming forward. I, I think it's probably right. time for a, a state that's a little more representative of us to go first. We're such a, mm, we're so slow. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like backing a, a cruise ship into a tiny Parking part of that part of the slow part of the slow is a good thing it's because we have three branches of government it's so that sure. it prevents dictatorships right if things move slow checks and balances but man we also live in a digital society where things can happen fast i think we excuse a slow pace for uh for checks and balances when in reality so many times it's just a lack of will like i just spent um i, I just spent an evening with my friend Zoran Mamdani, who's a, a New York State Assemblyman, mm-hmm. um, represents Queens. He's on a hunger strike outside New York City City Hall right now to, oh. to help the cabbies protesting the, the medallion fees and the debt that a lot of them are in that drove right. a lot of cab drivers to suicide. They have a plan. All the city has to do is guarantee that debt, and it sort of fixes the issue, and de Blasio hasn't even spoken out about it. I mean, there are things like this that right. that are happening in our own communities also that is just so critical that we that we show up for that we can like it's it it was super easy for me to take the subway down there and and you know meet them for a little while sign a couple things you know send an email to the governor governor's office and or or the mayor's office i'm sorry um 
Yeah. So I, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but I think the, the no, but I like it. And that medallion issue is a huge it's crazy. issue. Yeah. It's crazy. And it needs to be resolved. Yes. Oh my God. It's very, I love hearing you say that you write letters that you fire off missives. Mm -hmm. It's very important to do it that. It is important. And I gotta, I gotta say, especially, if, you know, if I know there are a lot of people who listen to your podcast who are parts of organizations or they're, they're in, in college and parts of clubs, the, the nasty tweet that you send to a politician obviously feels amazing. I won't lie about that. Yeah, but sure. Signing a letter with the heads of other organizations, like 20 people who you can get to sign a letter or 10, 10 heads of an organization that you actually mail off that, that like they track that and they know that that letter is effectively signed by a thousand people or 2000 people. Right. And, you know, I, I would encourage folks to do that kind of a thing, too. I, I was the recipient of many of those letters, and I know what a, what a difference that makes. It does make a difference. Like a, a, a letter in, in letter form also, like those are yeah, red. they are. They're they are. They're red. They are taken yeah. seriously. It is a lot. I agree with you. It's more satisfying to be like, you're a dickhead on your Twitter feed. But actually, if you get a stamp <laughs> yeah. put it on a piece of paper, everyone's like, someone has to open yeah. it. And they go, people are really right. mad. They're actually writing physical yeah. letters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have said that there is no pandemic recovery without specifically also focusing on the arts and yeah. culture. What would you like to see at the federal level? to accomplish this? Do we need some sort of like federal arts project? Like when you think about how long Broadway spent just yeah. like off yeah, with no social safety net, like just like bye, right. no more plays for a year and a half. Yeah. There's a big, there's an economic, the way I see it, there, there are multiple disciplines that are involved in this, but the three big ones to me are the economic component, the educational component, and then the diplomatic component. I think we do need a federal office. So many other countries that are developed have a ministry of culture or right. a ministry of art and culture. And if we had one that looked at economics, right, the, like you mentioned, Broadway or, or film production or music production, we often think of that as, oh, they're just trying to take care of Hollywood. But the reality is, as we know, there's so many great union jobs that are that that people have that that they're employed by and most of those are spread out throughout the country in small theaters yeah. and when theaters don't operate neither do the restaurants or the hotels that are next to them people aren't taking airlines to fly in and out for those shows and when you take that number in mass that's actually a, a pretty sizable chunk of of economic output so that's one thing yeah then arts education i mean it's one of the first things that gets cut i obviously you know, I did go to a performing arts high school that was publicly funded, but the point of those high schools isn't to turn out artists. It's to make people better holistic learners and their math and reading scores go up. That's really good for right. everybody. And then the diplomatic component is no matter which side of the aisle you're on, you know, there, there's a lot to fix in terms of how we interact with other cultures and other countries. And the arts have always been at the forefront of that. Reagan actually did a, a decent job with that back in the day. Um, I think Obama did a, did a good job with that. So there are opportunities there that if it's federalized, it's just streamlined and it's right. it, it's got a um, there's there's a, a lot more of sort of a, a, a broad, all encompassing proposal behind it. I feel like you've just created your <laughs> new job. Like, obviously, you should be spearheading uh, this effort, I, right? I couldn't pass a Senate confirmation hearing. Come on. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, let me talk about Sunnyside, yes, Project, which you co-created, you executive produced, you starred in it. That's a lot of work. I love that. I mean, you know, yeah, you've yes. done these. 
it's like a, just a uniquely diverse cast. Like, it, but you you talked about how it didn't get the same network help as some other yeah. shows. Like, what are networks still not getting about diverse content? Do you think? I um, thank you for asking that. By the way, and the the reason that I put that in the book is it seemed like you know it, it, the early stories I talk about the blatantly racist shit, like going to auditions and being told right. that I speak really good English and where's your turban and you know very very early two yeah, thousands things that great. I gladly great. we can laugh about now. But yeah, you know, systems are always really slow to change. And one of the things I learned through Sunnyside was that even with the best of intentions and the best development executives right. and the idea that, yes, we want diverse content, they don't they don't necessarily want to fund that content. And so whatever their old or archaic algorithms that they use for advertising spending, you know, we, we realized after we had gotten canceled, there, I, I talk about this in that chapter, there's a, a magazine called Ad Age sort of an industry publication right. for advertising. And they had disaggregated some data to find that we had, uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but it was something like 3,000% less of an ad spend than the predominantly white show that NBC had put on the air uh, right before us. And so it wasn't a question of uh, the time slot. It wasn't a question of, but I mean, that disparity in promoting a show is is tricky. And I'm the first person to say I'm still too close to it. It was my show. There's a chip on my shoulder. Right. But I think the thing that I wanted folks to learn from it, since I love what we do so much and hope that it gets better, the streamers don't have to worry about this because they're not ad driven, or at least they're not as advertiser driven. They're subscription driven. Right. So it's a tricky position for the networks to be in when they're using these archaic models of what may or may not have worked in the past. And I just hope they realize that if they want to keep that sort of content, they're going to need to invest properly, you know? Right. I think that our, I think in general, audiences don't really understand what ad spending is. Yeah. Like they don't understand how it's, it's vital. It's just a critical part of making a show successful. Yeah, and can I can I just give a quick example? Because you're right, I know a lot of folks won't understand what I'm talking about. Um, so networks use the Nielsen ratings to determine whether a show yeah. is successful or not and whether that show should be kept on the air. And they use that. There's only one metric for Nielsen ratings, right? And what, wherever you fall on that scale is how your show's doing. Right. But they don't spend the same amount of money on each show, even though the metrics that they use for each show are uniform. So what that means is if a predominantly white show gets 3,000% more of an ad spend, of course it might do better on the Nielsen ratings than the other show. Yeah. But that is literally the definition of institutional racism. I, you know, I, I'm not saying right. that someone purposely did it, but what I'm saying is institutions operate in a way where you can't fund something that much less and still use the same benchmark of success because you're setting people up right. to fail unless you're using a different benchmark, which which they're not. So right. something's got to change, I think, if if we really want to move forward with, with those types of places. Yeah, I think there's a future in kind of really just like blowing apart how TV is made, like just entirely blowing apart the entire system of TV, which we can talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And I love <laughs> it. I mean, like it was super... <laughs> I love what we do, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's going to have to evolve and, and change a lot quicker than it is. Yeah, yeah. And the potential is there. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, there's so many places to take your television product. Yes. And I think we all like kind of learned during the pandemic, too, that you don't have to make, you actually don't have to make television the way that you yeah, used to for sure. just physically make it. Like, what are, I guess, we've been talking for a really long time. So, I mean, I, I don't want to only talk about the pandemic, <laughs> but did you, what did you learn about your own life in terms of like what 
you know, what systems you could change in your own life moving forward. Because I learned a lot about television. I learned like some things are not necessary. Like some systems were just kind of like these old things that we all thought we had to do. Like when you make a political comedy show, you have to do it this way and you have to do some things just that way. And that's the way it is because that's the way it used to be. And we just like unleashed and like let go of a lot of those things. Did you let go of any of your own kind of systems of thinking or doing? Yeah, there were a few things that, you know, I mean, the, the most basic one is, I know you know this, you're, you're an artist who lives in New York. I assume you used to have to travel to Los Angeles quite a bit more than you do now. And mm-hmm. the, the understanding right. was, if you're a New Yorker and you move to New York, you're always going to have to be on the road a little more. And what a privileged thing to be able right. to say that you can do, live in a city you love and all that. Right. But the pressure I always felt like was if somebody says you have to physically be elsewhere for a meeting, you you go there, you you get on a plane and you go there and you don't want to offend somebody and you want to be professional. And realizing right. that the, the opportunity to connect with somebody digitally can be equally respectful and it takes an hour of your time instead of 13 hours of your time flying back and forth right. is kind of a huge thing. The second piece that's coupled with that is the, you know, uh, I have been an assistant, I've been a runner and a messenger, and I've had all sorts of odd jobs early in my career. And I really enjoy being able to thank the person sitting at the desk when I walk in for a meeting. I think that's important. I think they're the folks who make the office run. They're the folks who make our business run. So even if you're going in to meet with a network executive who's not going to buy your pitch, talk to talk right. to the two assistants outside, make sure that, that you they know that you appreciate the work that they do. They're all faceless now because they're not on these Zooms. They're not you know, there may be CC'd on some of the some of the invites. So that's something that I've missed a little bit where I found myself sending emails like, hey, Sandra, thanks so much for setting up that call. It really means a lot to me. And then at one, at one point, someone was like, you know, that's a little creepy, right? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, it just what? feels weird. Like, why would you email somebody like that to say thank you? And then other people were like, that's so sweet. That really, they really appreciated that. I was like, look, I can't litigate whether somebody wants to be invisible or doesn't. But that was the the flip side to the the travel thing is just the the inter-office dynamics of of that. Well, listen, I'm on the side that goes, well, that's really kind of like, that is, that's, that's actually, I think, a very nice Well, I've had those jobs. It's like, uh, it can make you feel really invisible when, when there are people coming in and out of the office and they don't even look at you, you know, it's weird. Oh yeah, having having bad jobs <laughs> before having really good jobs Dude. is a very important I agree. part of being okay in this business. In oh yeah, I learned so much about what not to do from some of the awful bosses I've had over oh. the years. Oh yeah. my goodness! Oh yes. <laughs> um, I honestly have enjoyed this conversation so much. It sped by. It went so flew fast. by. Flew by. I can't believe it. Time flew by for me. Same. I'm sure not. No, same. I, you know. (laughs) Well, I really, I, you know, your book is great. I hope you have a great book tour. And it's so nice that you can do it in your sweatshirt. Like you can do it from your (laughs) crop sweatshirt. You can actually, but you can like, you can hit a lot more places. Like you can hit a lot more venues because you have that fr- that freedom yeah. of 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 place and um and i hope people go out there and i hope buy so it, and then you create your own government office <laughs> and do 10 million more tv shows because now you got all this extra time because you're not well, exactly no i would love that yeah i hope folks to. like the book i also uh i narrated the audiobook so both are both are available <gasps> yeah great Ooh, yeah that's nice. some voices okay i like it all right thank you so much and have a great thanks day. Matthew. you too We're going to take a quick break. Oh, my God. 
He's great. What? And that was great. So He's a really fun. fun intersection, I feel like, mm-hmm. for our audience of like politics and entertainment. Yes. You forget that like people do that. Good of him to to merge worlds like that just for us. Yeah. And for a no true one else. Public servant. <laughs> Thank you. Cal Pan. Okay. Well, All as right. you know, obviously mm-hmm. we just talked about it. Cal jumped from Hollywood to DC pretty seamlessly, but it might be harder to make the leap from DC to Hollywood. Can you oh. tell us if the oh, yeah. following DC yes. personalities could make mm-hmm. it in Hollywood and what kind of roles you would like to see them in? Okay. All right. The first one, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Do you think she could get it? Well, normally you don't want to see any people from DC try to, you know, test out their acting chops. <laughs> so let's just like here's a caveat: it's all it's difficult. It's it's a difficult leap to make. Although Elizabeth Warren, very natural in front of a camera, mm. I'm going to put her on, in a reboot of Nanny McPhee. Oh, I love which that. I love, and it's so a movie fun. that I love, and, and I you just, just know think, she'll nail it. She'll nail it, and she's got the cheekbones. She's going to pull it off. It's going to be it great. Emma Thompson. <laughs> Yes, she's yeah. so good in it. I was going to say, great. Elizabeth Warren is such a great student. I could see her being like a Meryl Streep type and like learning all the accents perfectly. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, getting yeah. like really committed. Yeah. Um, what about, <laughs> uh, this is actually good with like scary movie season starting. Okay. Uh, what about <laughs> Kellyanne Conway? Oh. <laughs> I think she'd make a great she, I feel like she will movie. try. <laughs> she will try. I think she probably already did try. Listen, <laughs> nobody's nobody's thirstier for fame than mm. Kellyanne Conway. So there's no way that that is not somewhere in her past. Because as you know, I did a Daily Show interview with her and she was always on the Daily Show <laughs> when I was there. And she just was like, what do you want me to say that's going to get really attention, a lot of attention? <laughs> like she would just do whatever. So there's, she's definitely in a bunch of independent films and stuff. Definitely like a direct-to-TV movie. Oh, it's not good. None of them are good. That was, <laughs> that's a path movie. that she definitely, definitely tried to go down, and it definitely didn't work out. She was so, like, all right, like, then politics. Yeah, yes. She's like, well, I'm not shy, right. so what else can I make money doing? Like, I'm not going to make a lot of money doing this. Like, she's, I, she wants, like, money and fame. Money and fame. I'm surprised she hasn't popped up on Dancing with the Stars yet. She feels like an obvious... She's just stretching. You wait. She's not. That's, uh, you know, that's a, I I wouldn't think that that would be one that she would want to go down. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's Mm. like, there's a lot of immense potential for humiliation. (laughs) Immense potential for humiliation and broken ankles and stuff like that. Like, it's really, that's that's a good one to take a pass on. I mean, props to those who do. I even think Tucker really, Tucker Carlson really pulled it off. Just a lot, much respect. <laughs> what about uh, Pete Buttigieg? Hmm. He just took a sip of coffee. I'm sure that the podcast fans love hearing me swallow. <laughs> I don't know why I needed like a sip of coffee to contemplate. Interesting. Interesting. What would he be in? Like a reboot of Back to the Future? Oh, you know what what I'm saying? Like I'm getting, I could get a little. Like I don't want him to do that. He should not do that. Yeah, he should stay where he is. If we're casting, if we're just, which we are doing now and making movies happen, (laughs) I'm going to say that. That's my. That's what I'm going to. That's what I'm going to do. It's a go picture. Uh, (laughs) Cool. Um, Green light. 
This one, oof, I, even saying this guy's name right now is painful. Okay. Uh, Joe Manchin. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's painful. That's just, that's just mean. He's, uh, no, he's just like an extra. He's like an extra in a movie that's set in Philadelphia. And you know how like they have costume characters roaming <laughs> around? <laughs> he's dressed as Abraham Lincoln, but he's just like the guy dressed like Abraham Lincoln who's like in the background, like getting a coffee and eating a Kanesh. But like they couldn't get him the right kind of Abraham Lincoln hat. So he's wearing like a derby. Hat. Yeah, yeah. It's he's obviously just, wrong. He's like, he's like, does anyone want to take a picture with me? And everyone's like, no. But he doesn't, he can't say that because he doesn't have any speaking lines. <laughs> he's not allowed to talk. He's carrying around his nut shop. He, yeah, should never have, he should never have any speaking lines ever again. There's always, and I'm so, God, may God forgive me for saying this. On every TV project, there's always one. <laughs> There's always one extra who's just standing by a jar of peanut butter, like <laughs> dipping everything in a jar of peanuts, like sticking their fingers in the peanut butter. And you're just uh, like, holy shit, dude. Like, get. <laughs> okay, it's your jar now. That's yours. We don't want any more peanut butter from the jar because you're just like so obsessed with just keep going back to it. He's that. He's that guy. He's that All guy. Right. You're like, fucking keep the keep it. It's yours. Take it, Take home. it home. Take it home. We can't use it. <laughs> Last but not least, what about mm-hmm. Matt Gates? If he does not go to prison, will he go to Hollywood? He's just guys. I mean, I don't want to. This is. I mean, he's gonna do porn. Ooh. I was just about to say that. I mean, I was taking a somber so moment. Real. So true. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean. <laughs> all right hope you liked the podcast all the ingredients are there all and on the yeah. porn set he's the one in the peanut butter jar it's like i love peanut butter it's just a really healthy snack like you don't like, have your to... talent what are you doing <laughs> you know what matt that's yours that's your complimentary <laughs> jar okay <laughs> Oh, I I hope you liked this podcast. I thought it ended quite well. If you did, let me know in the comments. If you didn't, please consider hate listening in the future. Seriously, though, please rate, review, and follow Full Release on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Spread the word about this podcast. I'm worried now that Matt Gaetz's porn is going to be called Full Release. (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) merging worlds. It would be an honor. No, it wouldn't. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh... (laughs) Sticky fingers. In the meantime, keep sending us your comments and questions to full release at samb.com. They might even be featured in one of our special bonus episodes exclusively available on Stitcher Premium. Don't forget to tune into Full Frontal with Samantha B. Wednesdays at 10.30 p.m. on TBS, and we'll see you next Tuesday for another full release. This podcast is brought to you by Earwolf, DBS, and was produced by Adam Howard and Sophia Baron Reinstein. IT and technical production provided by High Tech. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by me, Samantha B. Maybe I should close my window. There goes the garbage truck. There goes the garbage truck. Hey, has to do it when we're doing a podcast. Is that disturbing you? That sound? Only if you're going to keep singing about it. Yeah, yeah. He's like, is she doing? Is she recording? Is she recording? (laughs) Let's get these recycling bags. Go, go. (laughs) It's go time. (laughs) They're recording the pod.